Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Second uh, Chronicles 28. Context. Context is easy. We just list off the Judean kings. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Asa, Jehoshaphat, all given God's word when they started their kingships. And then we had this reign of kings that go in different directions. Jehoram, flat out evil, gets his reign snatched away by Ahaziah. Um, she is overthrown. Joash takes over and he's great as long as Jehoiada's with him. And then he's got no roots. He's easily swayed. And when Jehoiada's gone, he turns to evil. Amaziah cares about the world and the desires of the riches. And he falls short of the glory of God. And then you get Uzziah, extremely fruitful in his life as a king, but he gets prideful about it. And in that he falls short. Then you get Jotham, which the, the name itself means Jehovah is perfect. And you get a fruitful king that prepared his ways before the Lord. He has tons of fruit and you get good soil. So between the last row of kings, you get the parable of the seeds lined up in order in, 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 a, in a neat way. Um, Uzziah being the exception and that pride isn't really part of that parable. What do you get after that? You get Ahaz. Ahaz is the worst king of Judah. Um, I, th I like how this chapter starts off because the writers just tear off the band-aid. Here it is. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and he made molded images for the Baals. Well, that's bad. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's even worse. And he burned his children in the fire. That Now, okay. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, and he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green hill. He sinned, and he sinned all over the place. He was a messy sinner. He sins in every regard. He becomes just the worst you can imagine. Uh, we should start with his name in the Hebrew. Ahaz means he has grasped. Uh, he is a possessor or someone who grabs at things. Um, he is a total embracer of idol worship, rejecting the heritage that his, his ancestor David gave to him. Uh, absolute goes after the ways of the kings of Israel. Um, again, in verse 2, when it says the kings of Israel, that's not a good thing. Uh, the kings of Israel have been heret heretical for, you know, since Jezebel and Ahab, they've gone off on that path. So at this point, when we see that in the record, that's not a good thing. Uh, burning his children in the fire. That seems like an odd reference. If you've been here for a while, we've talked about Moloch worship before. Uh, the worship, worship of Moloch was, I don't know how to, the detestable killing of infants is what it was. And, and we think, oh, we would never burn babies anymore. Um, yet, the worship of Moloch always went with the worship of Baal. They always go together. So you would worship Ashtaroth or Baal, and you'd go to these kind of temple-prostituted sex parties. You would have unwanted children, and then they would get you on the other side of that, and you would give your children up to the fire. If they tried to do abortions, that would have been putting the, the mom's life in more danger than if they just have the baby and immediately kill it. 
And honestly, if you if you're okay with abortion, where where why, what is the arbitrary line between being inside the womb and outside the womb? And historically, that that line gets blurred with ungodly people all the time. And when so a nation starts to accept abortion, they also become more lenient to things like murder. And and this happens in this case. They take on the Baal worship in verse. Two and in verse three they take on the burning the children in the fire. For this, we should know biblically speaking because we try to do this here. Leviticus twenty one has a death sentence for this practice. Whosoever gives any of their seed unto Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. In other words, in the first few sentences, Ahab Ahaz is guilty of the law of Leviticus to the point where the consequence is execution. This king of, of Judah should be killed for this ugliness that he's brought into the country. Whether or not he's king, he's breaking these laws. Um, yet it's amazing to me how this debate over when and if you can kill children still continues to this day. We call ourselves modern and progressive, yet it's not. Killing babies is as old as history. It is one of the, the evil practices that's been around since the beginning of time for the Cain killing Abel. You know, thinking you can kill another human, that, that that's okay with God, has just always been there. Um, we can note at this point, too, that he's throwing children into the fire. He burned his children in the fire. It, this is thought to be a greater sacrifice if you sacrifice something that's more valuable. So if you take a king's, king's, a king's child and sacrifice it to the fire, the idea is you're giving the god of Moloch the most powerful thing you can give, your own child. Um, that it was somehow noble to do this. Um, we should note here that the fact that Hezekiah is still alive to be a king after he has means that Hezekiah was likely not the firstborn son. It was often you took the firstborn child and burned it in the fire to Moloch. So the fact that he did this and that it's plural in verse 3 means that Ahaz gave up multiple princes or children to the fire prior to Hezekiah. Imagine that being a kid growing up in that household. You think you got bad parents. Think about being Hezekiah and recognizing as you watch your older siblings getting killed, that you, then at some point you're the next one in line. Like that had to be terrifying. What happens if one day dad wants to put me on the fire? And what does that look like? And how is that going to work? So having to watch your siblings getting burnt in the fire would have been a scarring experience for Hezekiah, to say the least, right? He would have lived in fear of death. At the very least, he knows that Moloch is more important than him. And he's got parents that are as willing to kill their children in order to please this invisible dead God as they are to actually love their own child. So sometimes... The sins of the father actually turn into something good. Hezekiah, we're going to see in the next chapter, is so disgusted with sin, he goes the opposite direction. He goes for purity. So we see the valley, the valley of Hinnom. Uh, literally, this is going to be in, in uh, when you move forward in his, history, the Hinnom Valley becomes the, you know, I, I, again, if you're in the Greek, it's Gay Hinnom or G-E Hinnom. And Gehinnom or Gehenna becomes the place that we call hell. Uh, it becomes this trash heap, and that's what's going on in this valley. It's why the Jews took this valley and basically said, we're going to turn this area into a trash heap. It's because initially this is where they killed those children. Um, it says the abomination of the nations that went before them. It's interesting, the Canaanites weren't cast out due to their nationality. 
It wasn't what nation they came from that made them get cast out of that area. It was their actions that caused that to happen. So the reasoning we're giving here is that it was this kind of practice that made it so God said these people need to move out of this land and they need to get out of here. So Ahaz rejects God. God backs off. Yet, look in verse 5 as we dig into this, therefore the Lord his God. And I just want to point out that phrasing. Even though Ahaz rejects God in every way, God doesn't reject him. God is Ahaz's God whether or not Ahaz accepts that. But And that reality is just embedded in the language here. Verse 5, therefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria They defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to Damascus. And then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who defeated him with a great slaughter. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. You know, people are really upset because 1,500 people got killed in Israel and it started a, a new little war down there. But think of this in terms of scale compared to that. 120,000 people get slaughtered in a battle. Like, where would you even put the bodies for this? I, I think this is an interesting part of ancient history is the, the wars and the battles that happened in ancient history were so violent and so brutal and so many people were killed in these battles that it would affect the growth of populations in parts of the world. Massive loss, a generation of young soldiers gone, um, and essentially these Syria and the Northern Kingdom are attacking because they really don't have a strong a strong army to defend themselves at this point. So Assyria is putting pressure on Israel from the north. They're putting pressure on Syria from the north. Geopolitically what's happening is the Assyrian Empire is getting to be a threat. So Israel and Syria say we need to take out our southern enemy so that we can face what's coming at us from the north. So this was, for them, I think, a strategic move. If you read the Book of Kings, you see more of that. But from the perspective of Judah, they attack, they make massive damage on Judah. Verse 7, Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maasiah, the king's son, Azrikam, the officer over the house, Elkanah, who is second to the king, and the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren, 200,000 women, sons, and daughters. They also took away much spoil and brought the spoil into Samaria. Again, the killing of babies, the killing of Jewish people, the taking of captive women, children, all of these things are so horribly part of Israel's history that we're reading a book that's thousands of years old and it doesn't strike us as too much different from what we see today. This is the history of Israel. Uh, It's a sad and a tragic one. At this point, 320,000 people are dead or captured as slaves. Was Ahaz a good king? No, he was a horrible king. This is what happens to Israel when their leadership is not following the Lord. And that's the point of Chronicles. Kings that follow the Lord get success. Kings that don't follow the Lord get these kinds of tragedies. Then we get to verse 9. But, all this bad stuff, but a prophet of the Lord was there. God's still sending this guy love messages. Hey, if you just turn, if you just repent, we can redo this stuff. We can undo this damage. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Obed, Oded. I'm going to want to say Obed all night. Oded. And he went out before the army that came to Samaria, and he said to them, Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. 
And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But you are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me, therefore, return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is on you. So without sending Oded, this gets to be a lot worse than it is. In other words, God intervenes to stop the worse evil and, and put a limit or a cap on what's going to happen to the southern kingdom. Um, it's interesting when Jesus says to Peter, like, Satan wanted to sift you, but I said no, that there's this heavenly discourse going on where there is a, a boldness in the face of evil from God's people. Oded stands up to an army. But there's also God's supernatural innovation to stop humans from being even more horrible to each other than they are. And you see this throughout history, these horrible instances and situations. And people will say, look at this bad situation. It must be a bad God that let that happen. A natural question for a Christian then is to say, what would have happened if God didn't stop that? Or are you sure God wasn't part of the intervening that did bring an end to that evil and did stop that kind of thing from happening? So in this case, or at least in this story, it's very clear that God actually sends a prophet to intervene. And honestly, if you go stand up to an army and say, you don't get to take your spoils home with you, Oded's think probably going out with this message thinking this is the last day he's going to be walking the planet. Like you naturally would think that they're going to just kill you for this. But then in verse 12, then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, uh, Barakiah, the son of Meshilamoth, Jehizkiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who came from the war. A small group of people like resonate. And these are from the, from the enemy. And he said to them, you shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. You intend to add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great. And there is a fierce wrath against Israel. They recognize they're in trouble. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly. Then the men who were dis designated by name rose up and took the captives. And from the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them, dressed them, gave them sandals, gave them food and drink, and anointed them, and they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and then they returned to Samaria. What's amazing with the good kings when they pray to the Lord, the Lord intervenes and helps them to win the battle. With Ahaz, he's not even involved in this story. He sends a prophet to intervene to take care of the people, even though the king just took a loss at battle. And there's a certain level of mercy that gets explained here. Um, Ahaz is not the hero of this story. Oded is the hero of this story. Um, God intervenes on behalf of Israel even when the kings aren't doing the right thing to put a limit on the amount of suffering that's going to happen. Um, it's interesting that Oded didn't just yell at them and walk away. He actually persuades some influential people from the northern army and they back off on the crime and they release the hostages. You know, at some level, this is a, a great mercy. 16 says, at the same time, King Ahaz sent the kings of Assyria to help him. While God's doing this thing to save innocents, Ahaz is messing things up even more. So he's supposed to lead the people to seek the Lord. Instead, he seeks Assyria's help. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And in this, he actually fuels an empire of great evil to come upon the land. Isaiah, at this point, shows up. 
We have a whole book of Isaiah. He will intervene. He will speak into this situation. He tells Ahaz they won't win. You don't need Assyria. And Ahaz absolutely ignores the messengers from God saying not to do this. God even encourages Ahaz to ask him for a sign and and to convince him. Ahaz says, I don't want anything from you. And the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to give you a sign anyways. And this is the moment in time when God says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. We've seen with the kings through Chronicles that God gives little bits of prophecy, especially to the good kings. But even with Ahaz being a horrible king, God gives one of the most specific prophecies we're going to get out of the book of Isaiah to Ahaz, saying this is something you need to know. So God progressively is revealing his plan regardless of the obedience of the kings. God's plan is moving forward even during the reign of Ahaz. He sets his will to replace the human kings and is reminded of his love for Ahaz, for his people, even though Ahaz is in rebellion. God's thinking about the king Jesus while Ahaz is thinking about himself. And just the way in which God's will will move forward no matter what, I was impressed with here. Verse 17. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and they carried away captives. So here's another problem. The Philistines also invaded the cities of the lowland and of the south of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ahijan, Gedaroth, and Soko and its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo, not to be confused with Gizmo where they make nice little gadgets, with its villages, and they dwelt there. For the Lord brought Judah low because Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord also. Tilgath-Pelesar, the king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. He went to the world for help. The help said, I don't care for you at all. Um, For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, from the leaders, and he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. King of Assyria said, thanks for the nice present and didn't do a thing to lift his finger to help Judah. Why? Because for Assyria, they they can just walk through when all this happens. They're going to march all the way to Jerusalem and stand at the gates under King Hezekiah in the next generation. There is nothing to stop Assyria after these battles and these wars between the different kingdoms of Israel. So an image of sin here is what we get. Ahaz has false gods. You give those false gods everything, all your devotion, all your prayers, and they take everything from you. Spiritually, they help with nothing. Also like sin with Assyria, he gives all these gifts, not only from the temple, but from his own household and from the leaders of the house. They drain all their resources and Assyria doesn't do a thing to help him. And sin's like that too. You actually spend your money on sin sometimes and it will continue to consume your resources and give you nothing in return. Nothing that lasts at least. So what do you do in these situations when people see their own devastation coming And their response is, well, I want more of the things that have caused the desolation in the first place. That's Ahaz. He's so in love with his sin that he does it to his own destruction. And he'll just keep doing it. Verse 22. Now at this time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. I like that that sentence is in there. Right? It says to the, like, they tell, the, this is like a children's story. Hey, kids, don't be Ahaz. Don't be an Ahaz when you grow up. Right? And there's just this idea of 
for Ezra's generation, the name Ahaz becomes synonymous with sinful behavior. And that's why they, the commentator puts in there, this is that King Ahaz. This is that guy that is that unfaithful to the Lord. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, because the kings of because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that might help me. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. Boy, this seems to work for these people, so I'm going to try that. And they, they try it and it doesn't work at all. Again, they appear powerful, meaningful, relevant, but they just aren't. They're human-made gods. And the world will often tell you what to put your faith and trust in. Uh, just know that if it's human-made, it's probably not going to last. And they'll probably take your money in the process. Um, it used to be that it was those late-night TV commercials. If you just try this thing for $19.99, it'll make your whole life better and wonderful. They want to take your money and then you order it. And, you know, it's not really x-ray glasses. It's just cardboard things. With, it doesn't work. And I'm a sucker for that stuff. There was one ad when we first got married that was like, you can be a member of this thing and get all this makeup and we will send you to Florida on a trip. And I'm like, that's cool. I'll sign up. I gave him a hundred bucks, which was a lot of money back in the day. And yes, we did get a box of really cheap makeup. And then the thing to Florida had all these conditions, like you have to be over 50 to take this trip. And we were not over 50. And it was like the small print I didn't read. So, sucker, I spent $100 and about $10 worth of makeup, and they got me. This is what sin is. Sin's a cheap substitute for the real thing. And it offers so much more than what it gives. It offers happiness. It offers success. It offers even salvation from the things that distress us, like Ahaz. But at the end of the day, it just sucks your resources and doesn't leave you any better off at the other end. And even a little ashamed and embarrassed that you're a sucker. And that you got taken. Verse 24. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, just to clarify, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. These are not all good altars, as we'll find out in the next chapter. In every single city in Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. What is the light of the world if the light of the world is following other gods? God can't allow Judah to keep going like this because they're actually sending the wrong message to the whole world. They're, they are salt that has lost its flavor, and he's got to throw them out of the land because they no longer are salty and can no longer represent to the world what a godly nation looks like. So he has to do something. The very things that are destroying Ahaz becomes the things that he promotes to other people. We see this all the time with pop stars. They celebrate a hedonistic lifestyle even as it's destroying them on the inside. And a number of them get devastated and destroyed by that very lifestyle that they're promoting through their music and their movies and everything else that they do. This is so great. It's so awesome. But it's wrecking them one by one. God allows this distress for Israel and Ahaz to send Ahaz a message. He's sending Isaiah so that that message is not lost in translation. And when you read Isaiah, note that this is when God rose that man up. You will talk to these kings that are falling astray. To no avail, Isaiah is not successful, and Ahaz makes a choice because he has free will. 
and he chooses the evil. The greatest evil here, the one that the author kind of saves to the end, is that he shut up the doors of the house of God. The great crime of Egypt before the Exodus was that the Pharaoh would not let his people go out and worship. The great crime of evil at the end of its agenda is to essentially shut the doors of the temple of God. If God's people can't meet, then they're successful at this. So, noted at the end of the list, this likely moves God to action, and God's going to kind of end Ahaz's life. Evil can't just go do evil on its own. It has to recruit people to do evil with it. That's the true worship nature of evil and those that worship evil. And, and at the end of the day, they can't be in the presence of people that are trying to be holy unto God. That drives them more nuts than anything else. So you got to just stop the temple stuff. It had been one thing if Ahaz, like other kings, just set up false idols all over the place, but it enabled the priests to keep running the temple as they were designated to do. But now they've shut that off. People don't have the access to the temple. They can't choose to go to the temple anymore. And, and they shut it up. I, again, it's ironic that sin often, the promise of sin is your freedom. You're free to do whatever you want. You're free to, to worship how you please and do what you please, but let's shut the temple doors. You're not free to do the one thing that will work. right? That's the only thing we're going to get on your case about. Everything else, you're free. Exercise your own will. And that's in part because even the ones that use the word freedom can't really tolerate godliness around them. It's an embarrassment. Then you get to the end of this, verse 26. Now the rest of the acts and all his ways from first to last, indeed they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Ouch, ouch. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. All right, so we know this. Joash was not buried with the kings because of his, his failing at the end of his, his, his life. So Ahaz becomes the second king that's denied, intentionally denied, being buried with the other kings. In part because he's simply not worthy of it. So all of Hezekiah's free will only really hurts him at the end. Um, God's glory through Uzziah and Jehoram, their successes uh, stand in bright contrast to Ahaz's demise. And they're both very revealing about God's forgiveness to those that make mistakes and repent. And God's ability to judge those that make mistakes and then double down on them and what they're doing. Ahaz then is possessed by other gods, other desires, other nations. At the end of the day, all of them fail to help him. And they all fall short. Uzziah worshiped, worshiped, he falsely worshiped a true God and got leprosy from it. That's a warning. Ahaz falsely worships false gods and his, the result is death uh, and, and, and not being buried with the kings of Israel. All the while, Isaiah and Micah are starting to show up, showing a good and godly remnant that's in Israel, reminding people, ready to serve, ready to do this, and probably really upset that the temple got shut up. Uh, the other failure of this sin hits the economy, it hits their military life. People are enslaved, literally enslaved, not just figuratively enslaved. And eventually the people of Israel are ready for godliness again. It gets so bad that the nation says, we'd like to try holiness one more time. Because this just isn't working for anybody. So then we get to chapter 29. Hezekiah. Isn't it nice that Ahaz is only one chapter? It's, from the heavenly perspective, it's like the guy was nonsense. He died. He didn't get buried with his fathers. Let's move on. 
And then we get to Hezekiah, where we're going to spend a few chapters. Hezekiah's name means Jehovah is my strength. This is where I get my strength from. He became king when he's 25 years old. He reigned 29 years. It's a good long reign in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, which means Jehovah is my father, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. What? We've been going through the entire book of Chronicles. Not even Solomon got that title. But Hezekiah does. So if you want good example kings, David, and according to the script, all that his father David had done, obviously David's not his immediate father. The word there can mean great-grandfather. It means any, it, it's his ancestor is the word that should be there. Uh, so it's not a mistake. They know that David's not his father. Um, they're using a term that is basically he's in the line of David, the seed of David. So this is a good intro, right? We pulled the Band-Aid off with Ahaz, but on this one, it's like, dang, 25 years old, he'd seen multiple siblings getting killed. He'd seen four poor, poor, oh my goodness, poor foreign policy. He'd seen the attempt to recruit Assyria to help and getting ripped off by other nations. Like that had to get Ahaz pretty mad, but Hezekiah's seen all this. In order to survive the Moloch stuff, Hezekiah had found a way to not incur the wrath of Ahaz. So think about that as a personality-forming thing. My dad's capable of killing me, therefore I know how to humor my dad. And I'm going to figure out how to do that. And or, he stayed away from the court as much as he possibly could. Out of sight, out of mind. That's a second strategy to get through this. Either way, Hezekiah gets through it. Either by being wise about his location or wise about his interactions. And that wisdom is going to show through in his life pretty well. Um, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, in the first, in the first, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. What does he do? He undoes the last thing that Ahaz, the worst of what Ahaz does. He goes right at the worst thing. He says, I'm going to reopen the temple. This is a strong indication as this is the first act. And he's not a kid when he takes over. He's a 25-year-old man. 29, I'm sorry, yeah, 25-year-old man. When he says, I need to reopen proper worship in this nation, this is the decision of an adult saying the thing that's really wrong with Judah isn't that we lost our army. It's not that we just got stolen from by Assyria. It's not that Syria and Israel hate us and we have enemies on, our, on both borders. It's not that they're getting attacked from the south and losing all the southern cities to the Philistines. The real problem is that we don't have proper worship in this nation. That's an interesting perspective for a king to take, who is in charge of civil rule. He takes on a spiritual leadership. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square. And he said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from this holy place. Hezekiah becomes a really nice template of how to get things cleaned up. And if your life has got a lot of rubbish in it, like, there's a pattern here to what Hezekiah does that's an interesting template. If you have a country that has gone astray from the worship of the Lord, this is an interesting template. Or it's just great history. The word rubbish there is the word nita. Sometimes we have words that have been sanitized. We saw that in Luke this morning. This is one of those instances. I ran into two of these this week. The word nita means impure filth personal garbage, but it also is the word used for menstrual rags. I won't go any deeper than that. 
The way Hezekiah addresses what's in the holy place right now is that it is absolutely defiling the holy place. This tells you something about what Ahaz actually did to the temple. Um, so this idea that they need to clear this stuff out, um, Hezekiah establishes rule by naming with words what, what this stuff actually is. It's rubbish. It's garbage. It's trash. And I think sometimes one of the aspects of revival is God's people, our ability to call sin what it is. It's not cute. It's not pretty. It's not progressive. It's trash and it's garbage. And it needs to get cleaned out. Like if you go into a teenager's bedroom after they've been living there for four years and they've gone off to college, oftentimes you move heaps of trash under which are bugs and mold and nastiness. And this can happen. Thankfully, it didn't happen with either Grant or Katie, so I'm not speaking from experience. But I've seen such rooms as an appraiser. I've looked at these places, and they're disgusting. And you know the thing is, when you take the trash out of the way, you know what bugs do? They run, because they don't want the light. And part of what's happening in God's place is it's literally been used and filled with impure filth. The first act of ruling their own country is to get the garbage and dump it and to throw it into the valley of Gehenna. Send it where it belongs. So the idea of sanctifying yourself, there is a point here where the priesthood had fallen short of doing their job. They actually were, they allowed Hezekiah to, or Ahaz to shut the doors. And they were supposed to be in charge of the temple. So they should have kept those doors open even to their death before they let a king shut the temple up. And so you think about these priests and the mercy that Hezekiah is showing here. He says, you need to do the job you were called to do. It's time to clean up. So they're not ready to do the service. Look at verse 5. Hear me, Levites. You need to listen to me right now. Sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from this holy place. Sanctification comes before carrying out the trash. In other words, the trash is just stuff. But symbolically, the sanctifying of themselves comes first. The group of people, the house of the Lord God of your fathers, the community needs to be cleaned out or sanctified ceremonially, and then you get rid of the trash. Think of that ordering that, that Hezekiah lists there. You want to clean up your life, don't try to clean up the trash in your life first. Sanctify yourself first. Fill yourself with sanctification and watch the trash just go out naturally. And, and don't think that you can do it the other way around. You can't. If you're a sinner, it's going to be hard for you to get rid of sin on your own strength. You have to fill with what God wants to fill you with so that there isn't room left and you see it for what it is and you can call it what it is. Obviously, with Baal worship being mentioned in the last chapter, we know that some of these rituals that were happening in the temple would have been... Um, Again, just the word rubbish that they're using there, there's a strong implication that there was like leftovers from people's intercourse all over in the holy places. You would think if you were legalistic or somehow thought like God can't clean things or there isn't a, an ability to purify or that you're so filthy they need to build a new building. Um, obviously, God's bigger than that and more powerful than that. And this idea of sanctification is that things can be made holy that were defiled at one point. And it's a principle in the Bible that thankfully applies to me, that he can sanctify me even though at one point what was inside of me was defiled and sinful to the core. It's not the sin that's the problem, it's the sinfulness that's the problem. 
And getting rid of the sinfulness will naturally get rid of the sin. So he commands them to follow God, sanctify yourselves. And I think this is good leadership from Hezekiah. He points them to God. Do it the way God said to do it. Do your job. Levites had a special role and duty um, that they might have gotten lax on under Ahaz. Well, the temple's closed, so we don't have to do our job anymore. And so they had to go about this process of getting their own act together. They need a nudge from the king to do what they should already be doing. So verse 6, for our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. I love the mercy of how Hezekiah, think of the diplomacy. He's looking at the people that have fallen short, and he says, it's not you, it's our fathers that screwed this up. We're a new generation. And he's saying that to all ages of people, right? Our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. The idea is here, this is a fresh start. What you do from today forward makes you part of the next generation. And we're going to be a holy generation because we're alive right now and this is what we're going to do. I just, great diplomacy. Um, It says they turned their faces away in verse 6. Do you see that? A lot of scholars believe that part of what Ahaz did when he rearranged the temple courtyard and moved things and set up idols and temples is that when you are bringing things to the altar, which stands right before the door to the Holy of Holies, you are looking at God when you give your sin offering to God. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to give this offering. And what's in front of you is God's holy place. And the belief is that what Ahaz had done is he took that altar and he shoved it out of the way. So when they were bringing gifts to the altar, they were turned, literally, physically turned away. They turned their faces away from God when they were giving these offerings. So this phrase of having turned their faces away, archaeologists see that and they believe that might have been what was going on there. And that he, he's literally telling them, we're going to set this up the right way so that we're facing the right way when we do our worships. A physical movement of things. Part of revival, a new life for a country is to actually turn and face God again. And a lot of countries today, we don't even talk about God. We don't consider God. We don't consider that part of the national conversation. But part of revival is when you have certain leaders that step up like Hezekiah saying, this will be part of the national discussion again. We will turn our faces back to God and we will start to recognize who actually rules the nations. Verse seven, they have also shut up the doors of the vestibule. Chapter 28, they put out the lamps They've not burnt incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. God people are a mockery. Can't you see that, is what he's saying to them. You can see with your own eyes what this has turned into. Anybody that wants to serve Yahweh is a joke right now. Because, why are they a joke? They didn't offer burnt offerings. They didn't deal with their sin. They didn't offer incense. They didn't pray and talk to their Yahweh God. They put out the lamps, which were supposed to be the light of God's word to the people. They're not teaching the word. They're not praying. They're not facing their sin. They're a joke. They're nothing. They're an empty religion. And Ahaz throws them away because that's exactly what they had become. Verse 9 says, For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Hezekiah does not take over Israel in good shape. His prosperity is entirely because of God. He takes a nation that's about to fold. Um, 
but he's been listening to Isaiah and we can clearly recognize in this language the cause of what he sees as the cause of trouble. The cause of the trouble is spiritual, it's not political. Um, that's such a good lesson for Christians. Our problem is not political. Our problem is spiritual. We have to see it that way. He doesn't blame God for the troubles. He accepts the troubles are because they've left God. He puts the blame on the faithlessness of the people, which is exactly where it belongs. And then he says, as you see with your own eyes, he doesn't ask for people to trust him on blind faith. He asks them to open their eyes, literally uses the word look, see this, notice what's going on around you, and, and recognize what's going on. In verse 5 he says, to hear me, he asks them to open his ears to him too. Hear me, look at what's going on, face the Lord your God. Don't turn your back on him as you see with your own eyes. Look with your eyes and see around you. What an awesome thing to say in a nation that's fallen into faithfulness. Look at what's going on around you. Do you see anything good happening here? Is there anything holy or righteousness, righteous about this state we're in? So Hezekiah is not speaking to a friendly audience. He's speaking to a bunch of fallen priests. They've been beaten down. The jeering there is, he's probably saying this while he's listening to people mock him. That have the people running those altars that have been set up in the holy place. He's talking to an audience that's probably not with him. However, he's the king, and that has a lot more weight in a, in a period of history where the king can just end your life with a word. So he speaks with that authority. Now, verse 10. It's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce, fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons... Do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand up before him, to serve him, that you should minister to him and burn incense. This is interesting. Remember Uzziah's mistake was he got so puffed up with his success that he walked into the temple. He thought he was the guy that should do it. Clearly Hezekiah has learned from Isaiah. He's learned from somebody who's taught him well. If the king wants to make a covenant with God, he is reliant upon the priesthood to do their jobs and to set that up. So Hezekiah is making a clear separation between his civic rule and the spiritual rule that these priests need to have. Separation of church and state, right? And that doesn't mean don't bring your religion to the church. It means the state should be welcoming that religion in, not dictating the religion to the people. So this idea of making a covenant, God has already made a covenant with the seeds of David, but Hezekiah puts it on himself to reciprocate that covenant. This is great. This is how all the kings should have been doing it. Do not be negligent. Um, unlike Uzziah, I love that he's calling the priests to action because A, he recognizes he can't do it on his own, and B, he recognizes the God mandate that's on the Levites that they should be carrying out. And he's calling them to do the job they've been called to do. And the reason he gives is because the Lord, Yahweh, has chosen you. He appeals to their calling, their duty, and he uses the name of God to call them to that duty. So this is, this is not using the Lord's name in vain. This is using it the way you should use the words, Lord's name in vain. What does he call them to do? Four things. Stand, serve, minister, burn incense. Those are the four things they're commanded to do. I want to be careful on this. What does it mean to stand? When you ask a priest to stand, when they stood all the way through Jewish tradition today, when a Jewish rabbi stands, they read the word of God to the people. After they're done standing... They're done reading the God's word. They actually sit down. And we see this when Jesus, when he teaches in the synagogue. They sit down and then they do this conversation thing with their students. 
So the standing up is to be actually reading God's words. So four things are asked to do. The first one, to stand, strongly implies the reading of the word. He says to serve. The service is outlined. Just read the book of Leviticus. There is a worship that is appropriate and called for by God. That worship is part of what they do with teaching and how they do it. So there is an actual practice of the worship of God that they're asked to do. And sacrifices are part of that worship, giving to God what belongs to God. They should minister. Minister is like another word for service, but minister implies work that you do for other people in the church. Fellowship. It has to do with how you serve one another. Service to God is the sacrificial system and music. Ministry is something you do to other people in the name of God. So loving God, loving your neighbor. So you stand and teach the word, you serve as an act of worship, you minister as fellowship or working with other people in the faith, and then what's burning incense? Throughout the Bible, burning incense is an image of prayer. We do something here on earth with our words, and it floats up into this place we can't see, and those prayers land in that place we can't see. So smoke or burning of incense, and it smells sweet to God. It's a sweet aroma in God's nose. So what are they called to do? Teach the word, worship, fellowship, and pray. It's all over in the Bible. Those four things are part of what God asks of us. So you do those things. Why do we do those things? I don't know, because God said so. It feels redundant when we keep hitting these points over and over and over again, which should tell us maybe we should pay attention to those points because they keep coming up throughout the Bible over and over and over again. What God asks for from his people is clear. And I see two types of Christians. Christians that can't even do those four things. And Christians that continue to beat themselves up, wondering what they should be doing for God when this is what God has asked and it is sufficient for God. People that don't do enough and people that think they have to do more. And on either side of there, there's a trap that we can fall into. He calls these priests out and he says, I'm reminding you of your duty because they lost focus on the duty that they had. They weren't doing enough. I want to serve God. You priests need to help make that possible. You need to do your job. It's interesting that he doesn't go after the false idols first. I just want to point that out. He goes after the people of God that should be upholding the practice of God. He goes, and the false religions are going to come later in the chapter. But he goes after the people of God first. He doesn't go after the false gods. Revival starts with the people God has called to the priesthood. You're like, oh, we're in the New Testament. We don't have a priesthood. Wrong. New Testament priesthood is all of you in the church. We are a holy priesthood sanctified unto God to do his calling here on earth. So if you want to see revival in your life, in your church, in your town, in your nation, or simply in a history book, it starts with the people of God doing what they've been called to do. And that's how you affect these other things that are going on. He couldn't have started in a worse situation as a king, but he does the right thing in the right order and in the right way, and we're going to see the right results. If the priesthood isn't sanctified, holy, and loving God, what are other people even going to follow when you start tearing down their idols? If there isn't a, a viable alternative to hate, how are they, and they can't see love somewhere, how are they going to ever turn from hate to love? They have to show, you have to show it before we can ask people to come and do it. Verse 12. Then the Levites arose. Oh, what a great sentence. Then the Levites arose. Like that's honestly like a chapter title right there. Then the Levites arose. Where were they before? Obviously reclining. 
right? They were not doing their job. They were slouching. So they arise. Mahayoth, then we get names. Mahayoth, the son of Amasai. Joel, the son of Azariah, of the sons of the Kohathites. I remember those. Of the sons of Merari. Kish, the sons of Abdi. Azariah, the son of Jehalalel. I don't know how to say that. Of the Gershonites. Joah, the son of Zimah. And Eden, the son of Joah, the sons of Elizapon. Shimri and Jael, the sons of Asaph. Man, he was the great musician. Zechariah and Mataniah of the sons of Heman. The the sons of, again, these aren't immediate biological sons. These are the names we saw back at the founding of the ministry, right? These are the sons of Aaron that are getting listed off here. These aren't their immediate dads. They're coming from these family groups. They're rising out of the ashes. Jehiel and Shimni and the sons of Jeduthun, Shemaiah and Uzziel. These Levites is a selection of people. Obviously, we get a list of names and we're thinking, oh, this is awesome, this is great. This is probably not the thousands of Levites that Hezekiah talked to. He's probably, there's a remnant that stand up. Say, okay, we're going to do this. Which means a lot of those Levites, there should have been a lot longer list here, by all means. So either he's just leading the heads of each of the ministries, or some are fallen and some repent, which strikes me as fairly historically accurate. What's glorious here is that these men get named, noted, and known by God because they rose. Everybody else is forgotten forever. If you think of Chronicles as a heavenly perspective, those names aren't even written down. They're not, the ones that don't stand aren't even part of the, 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 the script. But the ones that did stand up, even to the jeering of some of their colleagues, they're the ones that get remembered by God forever and ever. Verse 15, they gathered their brethren, they sanctified themselves, and they went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord. They did what Hezekiah said based on the words of the Lord, which is the Torah. They read it and they did it. To cleanse the house of the Lord, they actually take the time to read the word to do what the word says. Revival starts when God's people actually read the word and do what it says. We do everything according to the commandment of Jesus at the words of the Lord. And those two things come together for Christians. That's the only difference for us. They do what Hezekiah says as a king representative based on the words that God gave them in the Holy Scriptures. Not a small point, you guys. If you want to see the world change, a lot of you want to see change in this world. If you want to see the world change, get the rubbish out of your life. If you're worried about what's happening over in Israel right now, clean up your life. If you're worried about the, the riots in D.C., clean up your life. Make you, That's all you can do is get the rubbish out of your own life. If Christians do that universally, we change economies. We change nations. We change elections. But it starts with us getting the rubbish out of our own life. Stop dabbling with that stuff that you know you shouldn't be. So then these Levites arise. They gather their brethren in verse 15, and then in verse 16. Then the priests went to the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. Third part of the process. And they brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord, and the Levites took it out, and they carried it to the brook Kidron, which sits at the bottom of the Kidron Valley, other side of the the little uh, V that those two valleys make. The word debris there in the Hebrew is another naughty word. In the Hebrew, it's tumah. 
It means a filthy mass. Uh, in Numbers 15, 19, implies a filthy mass of stuff that comes from sexual, sexually unclean behaviors. So you can use your imagination. It's filth. It would make you gag what they found in the holy place of God. Honestly, when you look at the church and some of the false teachings that are working their way into it, you guys, there's some filthy stuff working their way into kind of popularized, compromised Christianity right now. There's just garbage getting worked in there. Um, the, the things they found, uh, it was not enough to shut the doors for Ahaz. Evil folks had to defile the space too. Not just lock it up and, you know, mothball it. They had to defile it before they shut it. There's a mocking that goes on with evil that Hezekiah, part of what they're cleaning up here, it was disgusting. Verse 17, now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. You guys, I can clean a house in under a day. What kind of garbage were they dealing with? Eight days for all these people to do this work? I mean, this stuff's made of stone. Like, get a mop, right? And clean it out. But there's a sanctification process that has to happen. Um, they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. So they got everything out of the actual temple, brought it into the courtyard, and then they had to take all that stuff from the courtyard and haul it down to the valley. So they, here's a thought, too. Part of the work of God's people when it comes to cleaning up things is kind of dirty work. And it's kind of exhausting. And I want to point out that it takes time. And a lot of times Christians beat themselves up because they accept and want to follow Christ and think that that sanctification process is instant. But sometimes to get rid of lifetime habits and patterns, it actually takes time to get those out of your life. It maybe takes getting caught a couple times. Kate's have, having a brother or sister kind of bring that up to you saying, hey, maybe you should think about this. But this process of getting heaps of garbage out of the temple, it actually takes a lot of time. It's not immediate and it's not easy. And it takes people that are willing to get their hands dirty to get it done. And this, so if you're thinking about these remains um, <laughs> and maybe some of these filthy, rubbish, uh, nasty remains are their mementos and I want to hold on to a couple. Maybe just I can keep one or two of those things around just as a reminder. Really? Is that how God sees that stuff? Or is it something that should be dumped over the wall and into the valley? Um, people that think there's things worth holding on to from a rubbish-filled life, I think they're sometimes just not getting what the alternative is here. Sanctification and purity is so much more desirable than that garbage. Verse 18. Then they went to king, into King Hezekiah and said, We've cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of the burnt offerings with all its articles, and the table of the showbread with all its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression. He also cut them up, remember? We've prepared and sanctified, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. Hey, King, we did it. Not only did we do it, we set everything back in its place according to what was written in the Torah. We did everything according to God's word. Okay, now what? Does that erase all of their problems? No, but it's the beginning. It's how to start it out. There's still a serious still out there. I mean, they're, they're cleaning out the temple and they got a massive army on the way coming to destroy them completely. 
Step one, get rid of the garbage, make it possible for God to approach and to approach God in purity. Step two, replace God's design in this house and put it back where it belongs. Set it up exactly as God said to set it up. There's the burnt offerings. We know that's atoning for sin. The table of showbread is listed. It's a symbol of fellowship with God. Actually get to know and have a relationship with God. And then all the articles. Uh, that would include the lampstand and the oil that goes in it, a symbol of God's light, God's light of the word of God going out to the world. And then the incense altar is one of those articles too, a symbol of prayer to God that stands before the veil and before the ark. Uh, they don't mention the ark here, which is interesting. Uh, some people think, well, maybe that ark got taken away with the Assyrians or something else, but I think we're going to see that the ark is here. It's just mentioned as one of the articles. Um, verse 20, then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rules, rulers of the city, and he went up to the house of the Lord, and they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats, for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Uh, he rose early. We always see that as an indicator of he was excited to do this. This wasn't a burden on King Hezekiah. He's juiced about this. He got up early to get going. You ever wake up early on any day other than Christmas? Like, there's Christmas, and there's the day we're going to the Ren Fest. Those are the days we get up early because there's something. That's how Hezekiah felt on this particular day. Today's the day. We're going to put God back on his throne in our lives. And he's excited to do it. He rises early to do it. Purification isn't a burden on believers. It's something we're excited about. We're actually excited to get the rubbish out of our life. And you kind of look around and go, I still got stuff to work on. We're still going to have to honor God the way God wants to. There's a completion that needs to happen, but I at least got the garbage out of my way. So I can see clearly this path that God set up. So it's not extravagant. So like Solomon, there's thousands of animals killed when the ark was brought to Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles 15. It's not that kind of thing. I thought that was kind of cool. Without a godly childhood, Hezekiah is very faithful in sticking to the word and to godly examples. So unlike Solomon, who goes way beyond what the word calls for, Hezekiah sticks to the word perfectly. And he uses this model. So what, what he does is, unlike Solomon for when the temple's set up, he goes back to when David brought the ark up and brought it and placed it in Jerusalem, or brought it up to that, that thing. And remember David had a celebration where his wife made fun of how he danced? The dancing was because it was a really cool day. They finally got the ark to Jerusalem in a place where it was supposed to be. So on that day with David, it was seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs. He does it exactly like what he read. So he's back reading those passages, and he's like, we're going to do it exactly like David did back when David brought the ark up. So it gets set up. Hezekiah sticks faithfully to the word. He uses David as his example, not Solomon. And then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. Okay, the odd phrasing. The them there is not the sons of Aaron. This isn't human sacrifice. The them there is a ref reference to verse 21, the seven bulls, seven rams. Seven is a number of divine completion. It's the perfect completion of God's plan. The sanctifying the temple is, should be honored with the perfect completion. So they killed the bulls, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Again, the sprinkling in the altar is from Leviticus. The idea is the, the blood represents life itself. 
And the sprinkling of that blood is that somebody's life needs to cover that altar to sacrifice it. And the bulls are a substitution for the humans that have sinned. This is why it's important when God is killed, that, his, that when Jesus is killed, his blood is splashed all over the place. And, it, it, and in the whipping, that blood would have been scattered all over that courtyard, same way. So the, the blood, which represents life, is sprinkled on the altar. Likewise, when they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar, they also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Are you hearing a pattern here? Then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king of the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. Goats were interesting. They called these scapegoats. The reason they laid the hands on them is the priests would recognize their sins had to get dealt with too. This is a very different kind of religion where the top people in the religion admit their own sin. So they would put their hands on the goat, transferring their guilt to the goat, and then the goats would be killed in their place. And the priests killed them, and they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all of Israel. You're not just doing this for yourselves. You're going to sanctify it for yourselves. But in this case, you represent Israel when you put your hands on those goats. All of our nation needs to be forgiven for our sin. Everything is commanded in the Old Testament. Hezekiah does it. It's almost refreshing because we went through all of the Torah together as a Bible study and you learn all of these laws on how God wants it and then you get to the histories and nobody does it. And it's kind of, so it's almost refreshing when you finally see a king that just does it how he's supposed to do it. And it's, it, it's, it's not that hard. But he does it, they do it, they laid their hands on it, they sprinkle the blood, there's an atonement that's given. According to God's rules that he made, Israel at this point is forgiven. Sins are erased. The sins of Ahaz are gone. And he absolutely forgets those things because he says, I'm not even, I can't even see through the blood. At the Passover, when they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death just went right over the house. And that's now Israel's got that kind of God's not going to bring his wrath that he had for Ahaz and the people, and it's going to go right over the nation. So then in verse um, 25, we get music. Music is not in the book of Leviticus. It was added by David. He added an entire thing, and when he adds it, the Bible's very clear that he's inspired by God, and it's confirmed through the prophets that music in the time of David was to be added to the worship um, service or work that they do, their ministry. So as he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, loud and annoying instruments. I just want to point out, the worship of God is loud, and if they're done right, cymbals are beautiful. If they're done wrong, it's, they're just loud. So with cymbals, stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. So get how it's not just David that ordained the music as part of God's worship. It was confirmed by the king, the king's seer, and the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. It was not by David that this was added. Hezekiah is keeping the law because he can see that the word of God was continued in later generations than Moses. So music gets added. The celebration builds. The atonement from Leviticus, the music from David's generation, but it's actually from God, is the point of verse 25. And then in verse 26, the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Trumpets, again, loud music. Bold music. Music that could be heard all over Jerusalem and maybe beyond. 
So if they don't have amplification systems, but if they did, they would have cranked them up for this. This was a national event. That to, When God's people worship, they mean to be heard by God Almighty. So being loud about it was part of what this is all about. This is not a quiet song of suffering from a jail cell like what Joseph did. I'd call that kind of quiet worship. This was loud worship that makes people dance like David. And the reference to David here gives us a clue as to what kind of music it was. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offerings on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began. When they dealt with their sin, the joy replaces it. And they happen at the same time. It's not one, then the other. It's when this happened, then the song of the Lord also began. They both began at the same time. You don't get the joy of the Lord without dealing with the sin. The sin is the burden, and it's the thing that captures the, the sanctification and the joy of the Lord comes after, alongside dealing with the sin. It's my favorite thing is watching a new believer accept Christ into their life because there is this feeling of awe. Oh, everything's changed. And of course, it's like you, you kind of want to tell them, yeah, the battle's coming, but let's just enjoy the joy for right now. And let's take that joy of the Lord and know that that's part of what you're promised for the rest of your life, if you can just hold on to it. So the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So the sin dies, the repenting happens, the joy starts. This is not a boring, tedious, cobwebbed worship service. They are not pulling out books that make a little crack sound because the spine hasn't been opened in a while. This is an emergent spirit of God resonating through the people that have been off-worshipping altars in the last generation. So we wonder how long it's been since these songs rang out in these streets and by these buildings. We wonder the joy that would have just spread amongst God's people when this happened. We also can know that not everybody in the crowd is excited about what's going on. Hezekiah does not necessarily even have a majority, but there is a remnant that are going to make a noise and they're going to love their God as they do it. How do you purify a nation? Clean out God's house and start doing what you're supposed to be doing in God's house, worshiping the Lord. They sanctify, now they're singing. So all the assembly worshiped, verse 28. The singers sang. Maybe the non-singers just mouthed it, you know. And the trumpets sounded. And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. That means like a long time. This is a long worship service. And when they had finished offering and the king and all who were present with them, they bowed and worshiped. Now we get the quiet, reverent kind of worship. Now they bow and worship. So all the assembly, the, honestly, the revival grows when Hezekiah says, I want to make a covenant. Then he goes to the leadership and says, you need to follow your responsibilities. And then it grows. They get their brethren. Did you notice it expanded there? They gather some helpers to help clean things out. And then the worship people and the Levites are on board. Verse 26, the Levites stood. They arose and now they stand. How does revival happen? Now in verse 28, all the assembly worships. Now it spreads. What spreads? Were people convinced to give up their idols at any point in this process? Or did they see the joy of the Lord and participate in it? I'm not going to give something up if I don't know what I'm getting on the other side. The joy of the Lord is worth giving up everything for. And so this process of seeing what's been replaced here, this is amazing. 
This isn't sneaking off to some wooded hillside somewhere in the country to go do weird things with weird people. This is the worship of God's name at the top of our lungs in the middle of the city. It's just beautiful. And when they had finished offering, the king and all were present. All who were present with him bowed and worshiped. There's definitely a revival going on that goes beyond explanation. These idol worshipers are now bowing and worshiping. They either took off and left, but all who are present were bowing and worshiping. And so something has happened amongst the people of Jerusalem. The revival keeps growing. The bowing, I think, is a natural result of feeling the joy of the Lord. First, there's this exuberant worship, and then at some point it hits you, oh my goodness, what has God done for us? And that exuberant worship turns into this kind of solid peace and abiding joy, something that grows in you, and you just say, what has God done? How amazing is our God? How wonderful is the maker of this universe that has blessed us with his creation, with his love, with, with the design of his worship. And he's given us all of this. This is what joy feels like. Praise God Almighty. This is what forgiveness feels like. Hallelujah. This is what sanctification feels like. I want more of this. And you go back to work on Monday and you're like, oh, I'm back in the grind. And the brain quickly forgets what is there at your fingertips at the other end. We quickly fall back into the doldrums of life. If we lose the ability to sing God's praises, we're on the outskirts of the courts. We leave the presence. We're backslidden. It's that simple. And you can have lots of reasons for why you're not in the courtyard. But to be in tune with God's path is to sing his praise. Or you don't understand who God is. Because he's worthy of the praise. To know God, to trust God, to appreciate God. Maybe it took a generation of false idol worship for these people to realize God is simply better than what false idols offer. And they're just thankful to have the temple back. Maybe it's the reopening of something that was taken away for a season. And then they realize this is precious. This is what's precious. There's a song, I want to go to church, which I kind of made fun of when I first heard it because I just thought, but then I listened to the words to it and he's like, man, you know what I want? A place where people know me and love me. What I want, I want to open up those old, old hymns that stirred my heart when I was a kid. That's what I want. I want those things. And this is a singer. He's seen the world. He's been in the industry. He's watched all that sort of thing. And at the end of the day, you know what he wants? He wants a simple place with good people and the heart of God being exhibited between each other. What a beautiful thing. To be in tune with God's path is to sing his praise because you realize the power of what he's given. Verse 30, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. This is the book of Psalms. They're reading the word. They're singing the word. And so they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshiped. There is a praise and a worship that's two parts of the same coin. Praise is exuberant, lifting your hands, shouting it out. Worship is quiet and still, and we often bow our heads under the majesty of God. And the two things go hand in hand. They sing praises with gladness, they bow their heads, and they worship with reverence, you could add. The gladness here is the heart that is freed. And the bowed heads, again, it was said in verse 29 too, uh, they do it again because why not? Verse 31, then Hezekiah answered and said, I like how he answers. What is he answering? Like he's seeing something happen with the people and he needs to respond to it. 
And he says, now that you've consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. So they're doing this. This is a festival. They're doing it all day. And people are like, man, I want to be part of this. It's interesting that they experience the joy of the Lord before anything's asked of them, right? And think about that when you got people that are just visiting a church. And we don't ask and make demands of people that visit a church, you know? And even then, to do it with a willing heart, we don't ask or make demands of people at all in church, right? There's a willing heart that has to be there. And if God's not doing that work, why would you, why would you as a human make those demands on people? So the giving comes after the blessing. And I, I just like that. I keep, it's one of those things I keep seeing this year in my own Bible study. God blesses first and then asks for a willing heart to say thank you. And that thank you can come in a lot of forms. Here they're giving beasts, which would be the first fruits. But the thank you offerings, the thank offerings, are more like giving something on top of that normal or expected tithe. I just want to bless the Lord. They're blessing the Lord, by the way, as they're being attacked by other nations. I just want to point out the, the political context of what's going on here. Assyria is coming. Israel and Syria have attacked them. The Philistines are attacking in the south, and they're going to sing songs at the Capitol building. This is awesome. The thank offerings is only one word in the Hebrew. It's toda. Uh, it is how we've combined two words to say thanksgiving. It's the same thing. Toda is thanks and giving being put together into one word. I think the combination of those words is interesting, and because it's a holiday for us, we forget how interesting that combination is. That appreciation often goes with some sort of extending of the hand is the literal translation in the Hebrew. To extend the hand with the implication of giving something out of it. So they brought in sacrifices and the extension of the hand. As many were willing heart brought burnt offerings. More than just what's obligated, but they do it with a thankful heart and a willing heart. A key concept that Jesus talked about, give with a willing heart or don't give at all. Keep it. And if you're not given with a willing heart, it's really not an offering to God. It's just an offering to human tradition and obligation. And God doesn't need it or want it. Only give what you're giving with an open and a willing heart. If it's not there, don't fake it. Don't be a hypocrite. God prefers you just don't give if you don't have the right heart for giving. That said, we should all be working on the right heart. Um, but uh, obviously, it's, he'd rather have you um, hot or cold on that one, not lukewarm. Either you love what God's doing and appreciate the blessing of what's God doing, or you don't. And it's pretty simple. Second uh, Corinthians 9.5, just to reinforce that thought. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that it may be as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation that you give to the church. Never give out of grudging obligation. Uh, I think this is important, especially for young people as you're figuring out your finances. Um, like, we don't need your money. God will be fine without your money. Um, take care of what you need to take care of. And at some point, I think there's a blessing in giving. But to give with a heart where you feel like you can't be doing this right now, um, that's even worse than just keeping it and taking care of your debts and doing something with it. And again, that's between you and God. Verse 32, And the number of burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs, and all these were brought for a burnt offering to the Lord. Still not as many as Solomon, but think about this. Hezekiah provided the 7777. 
And then the people started loading up more stuff and it became a bigger party. Remember, thank you offerings are waived and then they're brought out onto the banquet. So all of these kinds of offerings that are coming in, the burnt offerings are the only ones that get burnt up. All the other kind of offerings are for the feast that's now happening out in the courtyard. Everybody's eating together and they keep bringing in more food because they want the party to continue. They got live music. They got food court. They're good to go. Praise the Lord. That's what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. So they, honestly, what must the Philistines have been thinking? We've taken six of their cities and they're up there having a music concert festival. <laughs> Who are these people? What are they doing? The Syrians in northern Israel, like honestly, they're raiding their cities and taking slaves and these people are having a music festival? Praising the Lord and giving up their food source as sacrifices and offerings? Who are these people? And what are they doing? But I love that Hezekiah knows exactly what he's doing. This is combat. This is warfare. Because if God's on their side, there's nothing that can conquer them. They can't be overrun if God's going to be with them. Which is, honestly, just give me a couple chapters. That's exactly where we're going to land. The consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. That's lamb meat. This is delicious. But the priests were too few so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, their brethren, the Levites, helped them. Okay, that could confuse some people. The, there was a certain family of priests that took care of the offerings. And what this says, they kind of had to break the rules here, but for good reason. They actually invite other Levite families that were not the designated families to help prepare the meat because they just didn't have enough barbecue space and people to manage it. And honestly... These are what I would call good problems. Like when you got so many people bringing in things that you don't have enough people to process everything, this is the kingdom of God. There's more work to be done than there is helpers and workers to do the work. So the, the brethren of the Levites helped them until the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. Before you help, you got to go do the sanctification rituals because they're trying to stick to Leviticus. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. That's a sad statement of what was before. Um, so they asked more people to help, even if they're not part of the official rotation. They're still Levites, so they bring them in and put them to work. Verse 35, also the burnt offerings were in abundance. I like that they're pointing all this out. They're doing everything according to the word of God. Great joy and celebration. People bringing way more. There's way more abundance than they can even handle. And the point of this is, if you do it God's way, there is abundance in doing that, especially spiritually speaking. There is a template here of just this overflowing of the spirit of generosity and joy. And also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings. Somehow or another in the Old Testament, they think eating the fat is a good thing. So like today we've kind of demonized fat, but they loved that slimy stuff. And they would be like, Eat the fat. This is good. So with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering, every time they atoned for sin, they had more food for the banquet. And they matched it. You, I'll give two bowls, one for my atonement, one for the family. When God moves, there's simply more than enough to keep his people busy. There's more than enough work to be done. Luke 10, 2. Then he said to them, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest send out laborers into his harvest. Man, so the service of the house of the Lord, I like this phrase, was set in order. This is how it should be. 
This is what Ahaz didn't do. This is what all those other kings didn't quite nail down. They did it according to the word of God, and the results were what exactly what God promised. All of this is summarized. Cleansing, sanctifying, sacrifices, worship, rejoicing. That's the order of things. That's how it should be. And you look around and you're like, but I don't see that. And you're like, well, that's too bad because God's people have not set the house in order. The church has failed to demonstrate to the world what joy looks like. We don't know how to party. Let me put that in really simple terms. We don't get the order of what a party looks like. The exuberance of the church should be so amazing that people can see it and hear it and recognize it for what it is. That's a good thing. And when that happens, it just is abounding in that. The problem, I think sometimes, is that we look for something to be more ex- like more of an explanation point than the beauty of just simply singing songs together and hanging out together. And that's great. And you're going like, Dickers, it's never that kind of party around your house. And I'll be like, yeah, I agree. I'm a geek. I play strategy board games and study the Bible for fun. To me, that is the party. Um, but there is a part of the church here, this rejoicing that should happen. Come up to the music fest with us in Duluth next year. There's a, a massive party going on up there. And it's God's people singing God's praises. And it's amazing. Hezekiah first set God's house in order, and then he tends to his domain. Now he's going to go be a king. But the first thing that happens, the first duty is what's going to happen at the temple and how the temple's going to be carried out. Verse 36, Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. There's a note here that there's something spiritual that happened, and that's the closest we get is verse 36. Everything happened so quick. Like, did it feel like a huge break to go from the last chapter to this chapter? Like, last chapter, you get the sense that all of Judah is just worshiping idols all over the place. And then you get to this chapter, and it's all of Jerusalem, at least, is worshiping the Lord God Almighty just on a dime. And you think, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll confess, I stayed up all night in a line to see a movie at one point in my youth, worshiping an idol. But today, I, like, love this stuff. Like, I turned on a dime. I would guess that all of us have idols we've worshiped in the past. But we've all turned on a dime. It is possible for idol worshipers to turn and love the Lord God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. It is, I praise God that that's possible, or we'd all be lost. So the fact that it happened so quick in 36 that they're pointing it out here, it seems like Yahweh was kind of all done with with Ahaz, like the spirit was just removed from Judah. But underneath that lies a renewed people ready to worship God. So under Ahaz, there's a certain oppression to sin, and this remnant of people that love the Lord and want to renew pure worship remains even underneath this evil empire, which is why you can't look at an empire and say it's all evil, because there's probably Christians there. There's probably Jewish people ready to worship their Lord, waiting for this change to happen, and when it finally happens, the phrase here is that God had prepared the people. There were people that were waiting for true worship to show up. And when it finally showed up, they recognized it and knew that's what I want. Praise God, it's finally back. God, The God show is here. And I want to be part of this, not that. Verse 36 points out that God did all of that preparation even under the nose of Ahaz's evil rule. He had prepared their hearts. Unless God's people are prepared, 
nothing would happen here. God had to move them and God had to ready them so that this would happen the way it did. In, in other words, in verse 36, Hezekiah and all the people don't take credit for this because of they were so good at sanctifying themselves that all these great results happened. That is not what is being said in verse 36. It's not them that made it happen. It's God that made it happen. Here's another thought on this. They had joy in that thought. Joy was not obvious under Ahaz, but it is obvious under Hezekiah from the start of his reign. It is not a bad thing to think that God prepares people and we don't. That is something we should take joy in. Doesn't that take a lot of weight off our shoulders? I don't have to convince and prepare people. God does that to people's hearts. All I need to do is be ready and prepared myself so I'm ready to worship the Lord when the time comes. Hezekiah shows the people an obvious alternative to Ahaz's rule. Here's Ahaz's cruddy rule with horrible consequences, and here's a righteous, sanctified rule, and we're already having more fun, but the problems haven't changed one bit. From yesterday to today, the problems are exactly the same, just like when you accept Christ as your Savior. All the issues in your life are still waiting for you. But the, the difference is there's a new heart to the house of God today that wasn't there yesterday. And that difference causes people to rejoice. Night and day difference. Dark versus and oppressed versus light and joyful. Take your pick. You can be worried about what the Assyrians are going to do or you can just praise the Lord. Take your pick. You can be stressed out watching whatever news feed you watch, or you can read the Word of God and check out what God's got in store. The, the Bible has news feeds too. We call them prophecy. This is what's going to happen. Assyria is still coming. They're still bankrupt. They haven't turned anything around in the world, but today God gets glorified and they're singing with the top of their lungs. And they're bowing their heads to worship an almighty God. Hezekiah models this, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. They set the house in order. Praise God they were able to do that. What an amazing thing. Again, I'm just going to reflect this. To do in your own life, set your life in order. To do in your family's life, set your family in order. To do in your community and in your workplace, set it in order. Put it in order so that God gets the first place. Seek him first. Your city, your nation, the world itself, our era of history. Set it in order if you want to see changes. Let God do the work because he prepares people. This is a theme for Israel to serve God. God becomes faithful to this nation. But this is just the city of Jerusalem. In the next chapter, it's going to spread to all of Judah. This revival that starts in Jerusalem is going to spread to other cities. So that's where we'll go next week, and we'll see the continued renewal of Judah, just so that the next few kings will wreck it. But, you know, in the moment, we're going to just enjoy Hezekiah and how he does it as an example of how God has called them to do it. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for your word and for the history. We thank you for Hezekiah. I can't wait to meet him. I can't wait to dine with him and feast with him. Um, Lord, I can't wait to party with these people that were here on this day and to hear the stories of what it was like um, from the people that were there. Lord, we can't wait for the kingdom of heaven where you've promised us a great wedding feast, uh, the marriage of the lamb. And Lord, we want to be there. We want to be at that feast. 
Help us, Lord, to um, accept the invitation to be there with you. And Lord, we know that it's not our works that get us there, but it is setting our house in order and recognizing our sin, doing those burnt offerings. Uh, Lord, help us to throw sin out like the garbage that it is, the rubbish uh, that it is, and to just purify and sanctify our lives to set our house in order. Um, Lord, not because our works do anything for us, but so that we show our gratefulness to the grace you've already given us. Um, Lord, you had already given Hezekiah your word. You already told him how to do it. You had already created the system. Uh, all he did is followed it. And so, Lord, we do the same thing. You've already prepared a place. Uh, you've already given your life on a cross. You've already died for our sins. And we just want to accept that into our lives and make it part of who we are. Help us not to just be readers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Help us to do the things we read, just like Hezekiah did. Um, and we just love how he didn't try to outdo Solomon. He just tried to mimic David. And Lord, we do the same thing with Jesus Christ. We're not trying to outdo Jesus. We're just trying to mimic him. Uh, because, Lord, you've given us a role model and a pattern to follow after. Help us to do that. Uh, Lord, help, get, help us to get rid of the idols in our life so that we can prepare the way for the Lord. And we, we, we want you to do a work in our hearts. Prepare us, Lord. Train us and teach us and coach us. And never let us go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.